Look, mate, I've already bloody warned you. This content is meant specifically for proper adults. Listener discretion is advised. Now, you better bloody pay attention to what I just told you, all right? Adult content, mature conversation. If you're not an adult, put it down. It's not for you, mate. But if you are, then buckle in and enjoy yourself because it's about to get proper adult. appreciate the lovely feedback we have received and we look forward to hearing from you more. If you have any case or topic suggestions, please let us know. Our email address can be found in the show notes. And now, without further ado, let's get into the next episode. This time, we will be experimenting with a different format by focusing on one singular case. This is because we find the case so fascinating that we believe it deserves the deep dive treatment. This is also our first historical true crime case, and it should be noted that the context of the period and history when these crimes took place is very important to the overall arc of the story. Hence, we will go into that a bit. We will certainly do more deep dive episodes in the future, so keep an eye out for those. For now, we will present to you our first in-depth episode, The Mystery of the Midnight Assassin of Austin, Texas. To discuss this case, it's important to contrast it with a very similar and undoubtedly more famous case that occurred just a few years later, the Whitechapel murders in London, perpetuated by the enigma that was Jack the Ripper. Certainly, everyone has heard this name regardless of your level of true crime enthusiasm. It is not hyperbolic to say he was the most famous serial killer of all time. Certainly, part of that is due to the mystery surrounding his true identity, something that numerous scholars have sought to unravel over the last 130 years. Though, despite all this intense analysis of the numerous crimes, the case remains unsolved. While the Midnight Assassin is just as great a mystery, some might say even greater due to his higher victim count, he has garnered far less attention as a serial killer, despite the similarities between the two cases. There are many possibilities as to the disparity in notoriety between the Midnight Assassin, whose rampage began in 1885, and Jack the Ripper, who began his crime spree just three years later and is now basically a household name. The geographical location of the crime sprees is potentially one reason for the disparity. In 1885, Austin had just 17,000 people, And while it was starting to evolve into the progressive and popular city it is today, it was severely outmatched by London in terms of both population and cultural presence, let alone the existence of the media. At the time, 
London was the biggest city in the world with over five million people. It was the capital of the British Empire and often in the spotlight. By comparison, Austin was just a dot on the map somewhere in the middle of the Wild West. At the time, London itself had over double the population of the entire state of Texas. Another large difference was the monikers given to each of the killers. At the time, the most popular nickname for the Austin murderer was the Servant Girl Annihilator, clearly not the most catchy nickname ever created. It also denotes the demographic of most of the victims right in the name, which, to some people, immediately makes the case much less interesting. Alternatively, if the killer had been the rich lady slasher, the case would arguably have garnered a lot more attention. However, servant girls were often black and always considered lower class, and sadly at the time, this meant that these women's lives were undervalued and their deaths less notable. Now, compare the nickname to Jack the Ripper, a name that immediately inspires fear and terror in anyone who hears it. It is a memorable nickname, and perhaps why he remains top of the list for infamous serial killers, despite being surpassed in victim count and brutality level by many subsequent serial killers over the years. When the Austin murders began, just as the new year of 1885 was on the horizon, Texas was a rapidly evolving place. But it had been a state for only 40 years. Even the largest cities in Texas remained under 50,000 until around 1900. The state was at the tail end of the Wild West era, and many cities, like Austin, were trying to become more cosmopolitan. Austin, formerly named Waterloo, had been founded just 50 years prior, and as the dead centre of the huge state, it was the prime location to be made the capital of the Republic of Texas. It was located in an area of natural beauty, rolling green hills, a multitude of lakes, and the Colorado River, which runs right through the town, adding further appeal and prestige. Austin has always been a city of dreamers, a city constantly striving to be more. And indeed, once the University of Texas opened there in the early 1880s, the population grew even faster. And to this day, it remains one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. However, when our story begins, it was still a small town with big aspirations. The ambitious new state capital was in the process of being built, and it is still the largest state capital building in the states, even taller than the US capital building. Austin aspired to be a destination city, and at not quite 20,000 people, it was gaining a reputation as a pleasant, interesting place to visit for shopping and other big city activities. And so, Unsurprisingly, when this series of murders began, there was real fear among the residents that this madman and his crimes could derail everything they had been working towards. On the morning of New Year's Eve, 1884, the first murder occurred. It all started when a man received an unexpected knock on his door in the early morning hours. At the door was a young black man named Walter Spencer, injured and covered in blood, 
who had rushed into the house proclaiming someone had attacked him and taken his girlfriend, Molly Smith. Molly worked as a servant for that particular household, but the man who had answered the door was actually just a relative of the property owners and Molly's employers, and he didn't much care about her disappearance. Certainly not enough to go out in the unnaturally cold weather that had swept across the city that night. He also didn't want this black man bleeding all over his relative's house, and so refused to help the man look for his girlfriend or help him with his wounds, and promptly asked him to leave. A few hours later, Molly's body was discovered laying near the house. She had been chopped to pieces with an axe, a viciously brutal scene, unlike anything ever seen before in the town. The city was understandably shocked. They had experienced very few murders, and those they had were usually disputes, amplified by whiskey, that escalated quickly and involved a gun. It had been at least a decade since something like this had happened in Texas, and those prior crimes had been perpetrated by Native Americans against settlers. However, while this crime did resonate throughout the city, few people of any standing were particularly worried for themselves, or especially sad. They saw it as simply a black-on-black crime, most likely a lover's quarrel. It was nothing for them to worry about. The police were stumped. They were used to murders that were easily solved, ones occurring between acquaintances or family members. This was beyond their limited crime-solving capabilities. There was blood absolutely everywhere at the scene, and the killer had even left behind the weapon, an axe, but the police had almost no grasp of forensic techniques. The most they knew to do was take shoe prints. Around that time period, fingerprinting was just beginning to be used as a way to identify people. However, police in Austin had yet to add that to their repertoire. The police were desperate to find a suspect and close the case. They didn't want the people to panic. Newspaper reporters were already flooding to the city from all over Texas to report on the story, and the police were not eager for their town to become famous for such a brutal crime. There was only one immediately obvious suspect, the boyfriend, Walter. But he had many character witnesses to support his claim of innocence, and he was known to have a pretty gentle nature, particularly when it came to Molly. Not only that, but the man who had answered the door for Walter that night strongly believed he was not the killer. He believed Walter's fear and panic had been genuine, and no one was that good an actor. Besides that, Walter himself had been badly injured during the attack, receiving several hits to the head. The only other real suspect was Molly's ex-boyfriend, William Brooks, and even with a pretty solid alibi, he was arrested and taken to jail. There were rumours circulating that there was some bad blood between him and the couple, and that was good enough for the police for the moment. Due to the laws at the time, they were able to arrest him on suspicion of a crime, primarily to keep an eye on him in jail while they investigated further and could build a case against him. 
Therefore, being arrested on suspicion of murder was a very different thing than being actually arrested for the murder. As the new year of 1885 rang in the night after the crime, the murder was certainly in the minds of the locals and law enforcement, but the city did not let it stop them from celebrating. No one could have predicted that this was just the first of many murders. So, Molly's boyfriend, friends and family mourned her and life went on. Day by day, the crime faded more and more from the minds of the Austinites. At the end of January, after a month of being held in jail, William Brooks was finally released after a grand jury decided they didn't have enough reason to take his case to trial. He had several witnesses that would testify to him being a few miles away from the crime scene until nearly dawn on the day of the murder, so it was very unlikely that he was the perpetrator. A few months went by and things seemed to return to normal in the city until a rash of incidents occurred in March. Over the course of a few weeks, several different servant girls throughout the city made reports about a late-night intruder. For most, he had tried unsuccessfully to break into their quarters. But at worst, he was able to get in and hit a young woman over the head several times while she slept. Thankfully, she survived the attack. But like the others, she was unable to give any description of her attacker. Others reported that they had witnessed someone near their house, and when they returned to their quarters, they found that an intruder had thrown their belongings all over the place. A few weeks later, two servant girls were in their quarters late at night when someone began shooting into their room from outside. One of them was shot but survived. This ever-changing MO of the perpetrator was bizarre and terrifying. No one knew what kind of attack would be next. And while the female victims were both black and white, they were all servant girls, and so again, elite members of society weren't overly concerned. In one of the incidents, a woman had awoken to see a man standing by her bed, threatening her and hitting her in the head before running off. So far, all the women who had glimpsed their attacker had provided a wide variety of descriptions, none of which matched up. However, this last woman was the only one who said that her attacker was white. No one believed this could be possible. Austin citizens continued to assume that the perpetrator was one or several black men of bad character. It goes without saying that the city was a hotbed of racism, with slavery still a recent memory. Everyone was only too willing to blame the crimes on a black man. They thought black men were inherently savage by nature, and without the structure of slavery to subdue their baser tendencies, clearly one of them was retrograding. Some who wrote to the local newspaper recommended shooting any black person one might happen to see on one's property late at night, regardless of whether they posed a threat or not. On any given night, only about four of the 12 city policemen were out on patrol, so the police force decided to hire civilians to patrol the white neighbourhoods, primarily to look for the murderer. 
While these community patrols were active, not a lot happened. So eventually they were discontinued at the end of April. Just a few days later, there were two reports in one night of a man breaking into servants' quarters and attacking the women. Nothing terribly violent happened in either of these incidents, though in one case, the man held a razor to the woman's throat and threatened her. Luckily, he was scared off by some of her friends as they approached her house. A few days later, there were more incidents, mostly involving minor disruptions, such as rocks being thrown at servants' quarters. Law enforcement rounded up and arrested five black gentlemen, including one who had lived in the local asylum for many years and was known to have mental health issues. There was no particular reason for any of these arrests, and the men were held and interrogated for days, which, at the time, involved beating the men in the hopes of forcing a confession. After all of the men were intensely questioned without one confession, they were released. Austin law enforcement seemed to be slowly working their way through the entire male African-American population of the city, hoping to stumble upon the killer. After the five men were released, the dust settled for several more days before the next incident of extreme violence occurred. Eliza Shelley was a young servant girl who lived in a small house behind her employers with three small children. One morning, her employers heard her children desperately crying and screaming. When they went to investigate, they found Eliza on the floor, obviously the victim of a very violent attack. She had sustained multiple wounds from an axe, a knife, and something shaped like a screwdriver. One of her young sons said that he had been woken in the night by a man whose face was covered with a makeshift mask. The man demanded to know where the money was and then made the boy hide his head under a pillow. Despite not having seen the man's face, the boy felt certain he was a white man. The boy also said he had not heard any of the struggle that had resulted in his mother's death. Eliza's employers were very distraught, as she had been considered a member of the family. She was married, though her husband was in prison at the time, and no one knew of any other romantic affiliations she may have had, and no one could come up with any possible motive for her murder. The only real evidence left at the crime scene were footprints on the outside of the cabin, left by someone who had not been wearing shoes. Local white residents continued to assume that the crimes were the work of a gang of black hoodlums. A local wannabe writer named William Sidney Porter came up with the nickname the Servant Girl Annihilators for this hypothetical gang of murderers. Porter would go on to be a famed short story author who wrote under the pseudonym O. Henry. Rumours and theories amongst the black neighbourhoods were of a more paranormal nature, they imagined perhaps some evil entity was performing these dark deeds. One man was briefly arrested on suspicion of Eliza's murder because of a tip received by the cops. However, it turned out the person who had reported the tip had done so due to a personal vendetta. The arrested man had no link to the crime or Eliza. Like many serial killers, 
Less time was elapsing between each of the midnight assassin's crimes. Just a few weeks after Eliza's murder, a man heard a scream in his backyard late one night and went outside to see his cook, Irene Cross, lying on the ground covered in blood. Her arm had been nearly completely severed and she had a long, jagged cut on her head. She survived for a couple of days before passing away due to her wounds, though even when she was still conscious, she was unable to speak. Her nephew, who had seen the attacker come into their little house, described him as a chunky black man. Over the next few weeks, there were some less serious attacks, one involving a gun being fired into servants' quarters and hitting a woman in the arm, and another where a large rock was thrown into a residence, injuring no one. It's possible these smaller incidents could have been copycat crimes. After each attack, local white residents continued their assertion that it was a group of angry black men, while other rumours spiralled further from reality to murderous cults and outlaws living in nearby caves together. To them, this was more believable than the idea that it could be just one corrupt white guy. The cops continued to arrest black men, seemingly at random, probably in the hopes that the threat of jail and police beatings would eventually pay off and prompt someone to reveal something. After Irene's murder and the minor follow-up incidents, the summer was mostly hot and quiet, all the way until the end of August. The next attack would take the brutality to a whole new level. It also revealed just how brazen the killer was becoming. Like many other servant women, Rebecca Remy and her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, had taken to sleeping in the kitchen of her employer. They felt safer being in the house with the others, though this proved to be a false sense of security. During the night, Rebecca woke and saw a dark figure lurking in the kitchen, the man hit her with a heavy club, knocking her unconscious, and when she came to, her young daughter was missing. Her employer, Valentine Weed, went searching for young Mary and found her on the brink of death in a backyard shed. She had been stabbed in both ears. The tender age of the victim, the viciousness of the attack, and the fact that the killer had boldly walked into the house and abducted his victim elevated this crime to the most shocking yet. In each of the previous murders, law enforcement unsuccessfully attempted to use bloodhounds to track the killer's scent. However, after this crime, they were able to follow a scent down the road to where they found a young black man asleep in the barn. He was, of course, arrested. And as seemed to be the running theme, he was released the same day due to a complete lack of evidence. They then arbitrarily arrested a known criminal who was also later released. The murder of young Mary certainly got the attention of all of Austin's residents, regardless of race. Rebecca survived the attack, but had to bear the unspeakable tragedy of bearing her murdered child a pain anyone could empathise with. Law enforcement decided to bring in an outside private detective named Hennessy, 
one of the many of that era who desperately wanted to be seen as a hardened detective straight out of a pulp novel. Hennessy came to town with some associates, and the three of them got a lot of attention despite making absolutely no progress on the case. One weekend, they left town briefly, and the killer attacked again. It was the end of September, and over consecutive days, a man was both seen and heard lurking outside a number of different residences. Two servant women that saw him insisted he was white. After those close calls, the killer struck again with ferocity. A local newspaper man heard sounds behind his house, where four people were staying in his servants' quarters. This included his servant girl Gracie, her boyfriend Orange, and two servant women who were employed at nearby houses. The homeowner went to investigate the sounds and discovered Gracie's two friends badly injured and near death. Her boyfriend Orange was dead from an apparent axe attack. Gracie wasn't there, but they were quickly able to track her down in a neighbouring yard. The attack was the most horrendous yet, beyond anything the detectives had ever witnessed, and focused mostly on her face. Laying near her beaten body was the murder weapon, a brick. The killer's anger was escalating. His savagery was not restricted to one weapon, and it seemed he would just throw down each weapon as he was done with it and grab something else. No doubt, the scene was crawling with forensic evidence that 19th century policemen were unable to use. By the next morning, only Gracie and Orange had died from their wounds. Later that day, a servant girl reported that when she had returned to her quarters after sleeping in the main house, she immediately noticed that someone had been in her room and her belongings had been rifled through and thrown everywhere. Initially, she thought it was a robbery, but ascertained that only one thing was missing, her watch. When she described it to law enforcement, they realised they had seen it before. Gracie had been wearing it when her body was found. We have decided to make this a two-part episode due to the large quantity of information related to this midnight assassin. So... We will end this episode with To Be Continued and we'll be back next week with the conclusion of this twisted tale. Until then, keep that nightlight on because you never know what's waiting for you in the dark. Mm-hmm.